Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash deathdyingandotherthings. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. We have a big field of wildflowers right next to our apartment. Now that spring is in full force, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Brilliant oranges, bright whites, purples, and blues and yellows. A sea of color. But of course, me being me, the creator of this podcast, I couldn't just let that rolling field of flowers be. No, I had to start thinking about the things that live in that field. The creepy crawlies, the small animals, perhaps other things too. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a story about a field of wildflowers. In What Lives in the Wildflowers, a teenage boy asks his little brother that exact question. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. small cabin was always the most beautiful in the springtime. The light rains brought moisture to the ground and the weeds and wildflowers gulped the small puddles with gluttonous fervor. When buds appeared on each stalk, the bees came, and perhaps incited by their buzzing presence, the buds opened into colorful flowers. By late April, the field was a kaleidoscope of oranges and reds and purples and blues, and that cyclone of yellow and black stripes whipped through the field, caressing each set of soft petals in turn. Underneath the flowers and their droning partners, an entire world awakened, seething and writhing in the new humidity. Unseen, but their sound unmistakable. Crickets and locusts and a million things with six or eight or a hundred legs. The fragrance on those mid-spring days intoxicated anyone who stepped outside the back door of that solitary house. It wouldn't be completely out of the ordinary for me or one of the others in my family, my sister, Alex, or my mother, 
to find ourselves at eight or nine at night surprised that we had spent the entire day reading on the porch overlooking that field. My great-great-grandfather built that cabin, and it had been in the family ever since. In the family, but hardly used. My grandfather, when he inherited it, had only been to the cabin in his teenage years, and never once brought my mother to see it. It was, actually, quite a surprise to my mother when, in that attorney's office in the weeks after her father's death, they found the deed to that place. It sat unused for years after that, too. It fell out of our minds in the years after my grandfather's death. The deed filed away somewhere with my mother's lawyer. My sister or I would bring it up once in a great long while, asking our mom, hey, whatever happened to grandpa's cabin? And she'd shrug, and that would be that. My father got sick several years after that. It took a long time for it to take him, he fought and clawed and threw that cancer the middle finger while he wasted away, and when he finally passed, he was still gritting his teeth, defying the inevitable. It gutted my mother to see. Her eulogy seemed more like a confessional, confiding in the gathered mourners that sometimes, on especially hard days, she had wished my father wouldn't have fought so hard. She hoped that she would have the strength to lead her family without her co-pilot, and she admitted that, without him by her side, she wasn't sure how kind she could be to a world, to a reality, that had stolen him from her. On the other side, when we had finally laid him to rest, she hugged me, face slick with tears, and whispered into my ear that she wasn't sure what was real anymore. We first went up to the cabin six months after that. Left with just my mom's income and the massive medical bills left from my father's passing, things were tight. I had just turned 16, and so I had started working nights and weekends to help, but my sister wasn't old enough to work besides a few babysitting jobs here and there, and my mom didn't have the heart to take a couple of $20 bills from her daughter. My mom figured if she could fix up that cabin, we might be able to sell it and ease some of the financial pressure. The car ride was longer than expected, much longer. A three-hour drive ended up taking six hours. The ride along the highway was mostly fine, but once we turned off onto that twisting and turning dirt road, the forest did its best to keep us out. Not ten minutes on that dirt road and we rolled to a stop in front of a fallen tree branch. My sister yawned in the back seat, awoken by the car's sudden stop. What's going on, she asked. Some stuff in the road, my mom said. I'll get it, I said, and opened the passenger door of the car. I stretched my legs, shaking off the car ride and breathed deep. Here the forest was dense and damp. I smelled the wet wood and decaying leaves. I had always liked that smell. I walked around the front of the car to the tree branch and kicked it. My foot went straight through the rotting wood, and so I bent down and grabbed hold, breaking off pieces of crumbling wood and tossing them aside. A breeze kicked up just as I finished, tickling my face and rustling the thick canopy overhead. 
It brought with it a new smell, something pleasant and sweet, and I breathed it in deep. The scent was familiar, or maybe just adjacent to familiar. Just similar enough to something I would recognize that it caressed my mind and convinced me that I knew what it was, but dissimilar enough that I would never make the connection. I breathed deep one last time, mining deep into my memories, searching for the scent I had smelled before, when my ears perked up. I spun around, looking into the dank forest. I thought I had heard something on the wind, faint conversation, like two people talking in the next room. Muffled, incomprehensible, but recognizable as speech. I signaled my mom to cut the engine to the car. She mouthed why, and I signaled again, but by the time she had cut the engine, the sound was gone. I jumped back into the car, and we continued along that dirt road, stopping every ten minutes or so to clear the way of debris. The cabin wasn't livable. Years and years of neglect had brought much of it tumbling down, but the surrounding open field made all four of us, my mom, Alex, my little brother Ben, and I, fall in love immediately. I could tell my mom's mind changed in an instant, and we were no longer here to fix the place up to sell, but to fix the place up to keep, to stay. The magic of that place, even then in early spring, when the snow had melted but the chill was still on the air and the wildflowers had yet to bloom, the cabin, ruined as it was, enchanted us. It was late afternoon already, and though my mom had hoped it'd be as easy as starting a fire in the fireplace and sleeping inside, we'd packed a tent. I set out to pop that tent up while my mom and sister surveyed the grounds. Ben stayed behind to help me, and though he was too small to be of any real use, he held the stakes for me while I pulled the tent up and handed each one over when I was ready to hammer it into the ground. Ben, well, Ben hadn't talked in the months since our dad had died. He was only five years old, but I could always sense the deep wells of emotion that pooled behind his blue eyes. My mother always said he was an old soul, born with the experience of countless lifetimes. I never really knew what she meant by that. I always just knew Ben as the most sensitive of the family. I remember the last words he said back at Dad's funeral. Mom sat alone, near the back of the wake, trying to get her tears under control. Ben saw her, crying by herself, reached up, and slid his small plate onto the table, leaving the snack I'd been helping him prepare. He hurried over to her, and I followed close by. Little Ben, old soul that he was, jumped up next to her and put his hand on her knee. He looked up into her tear-filled eyes and said, He's not gone forever, just gone for us. And then he smiled, and my mother's tears stopped, and she smiled down at him and scooped him up and hugged him. You know... I think you're right, she said. He hadn't said a word since. I asked Ben for the last of the tent's stakes and pushed it into the soil, hammering it home. Standing up, I looked around the field for my mom and sister and saw them near the end of the clearing where the field sloped down and tumbled back into the forest. My mom waved at us, and Ben shot off toward them.
There wasn't much we were going to be able to do on our own to set out repairing the cabin, at least not on this trip. It was going to take money, money we didn't have. For now, I built a campfire and we cooked dinner and talked about Dad and how much he would have loved it out there. My eyes opened, staring at the moon through the skylight in the top of the tent. It was high and bright and illuminated everything, including the inside of the tent. I shivered. The breeze came and went and swirled the air in the tent. I smelled that gentle, sweet scent again, and I heard the flap of the tent wave with each cool gust. I sat up. Why was the flap open? I glanced at each sleeping bag. My mom, my sister, both sound asleep. Ben's sleeping bag, though, empty. He probably went to the bathroom. Probably just that, I thought. Better go check on him, though. I crawled out of my sleeping bag, doing my best not to disturb Alex or my mom, and slipped out of the tent, sipping the flap behind me. The temperature, hinted at by that cool breeze, had fallen into the fifties. I stumbled over a log, near the extinguished campfire. Then I tripped over some exposed roots, nearly tumbling to the ground before catching myself. Peering through the moonlight, I scanned the clearing around the cabin for Ben. Then I did it again. My heart rate started to pick up. If he wasn't here in the clearing, where could he have gone? My eyes darted around the clearing once more and thankfully spotted him. He was kneeling down right at the overgrowth, right where those wildflowers had started to show their buds, just hidden by shadow. I took a breath in, ready to whisper his name, but just as I was about to let his name fly from my mouth, Ben's soft voice reached my ears. For six months I hadn't heard it, but there was no mistaking it. Tender and naive, I couldn't tell what he was saying, but I could hear his inflection. Curious, inquisitive, he was asking lots of questions. I stepped forward, careful not to disturb him. I didn't want to scare him and end up with another six months of silence or worse. Careful step by careful step, until I could make out his words. I think so, he said, and then paused for several seconds. His inflection had turned from asking questions to answering them. They're in the tent over there, sleeping, he said, and then paused a few more seconds. My mom, my sister, and my brother. My brother, I think. I don't know. Is that okay? I think I can. I don't think so. No. No. Yes, okay. Ben, abruptly and without warning, spun around and stared up at me before turning around once more to face the field of flowers. Oh, that's my brother, he said. Okay. Ben stared into the shadowy overgrowth for a few more seconds and then stood up, turned, and walked past me back toward the tent. Hey, bud, I said. Ben stopped and turned to me. Who are you talking to? I asked. 
He walked back toward me and then waved for me to meet him on his level. I took a knee, meeting his eyeline. He leaned in, put his face next to mine, and then whispered to me. They live here, and they don't know if they like us yet. He smiled at me and then walked back to the tent, where he slipped back into his sleeping bag and went back to sleep. I spent a few minutes longer watching the green and yellow and brown stalks wave in that gentle breeze. It would be a few weeks before we made it back to the cabin. In those weeks, Mom was pleased Ben had started talking again. In fact, he was more talkative than before Dad's passing, taking every opportunity to tell you what he was thinking or ask about something or other. On several occasions, out of earshot of both my mom and my sister, I asked Ben about that night at the cabin, and he always had the same response. They live there, and they don't know if they like us yet. Nothing else. No comparison or name or description. Were they animals, I'd ask? No, Ben would say. Did they talk to you, I'd ask? Yes, Ben would say. How come I didn't hear them, I'd ask. I don't know, Ben would say. And then I'd leave it at that. We brought shovels and rakes and a wheelbarrow the next time we went up. The plan was to get the grounds in order first, then we'd work on getting that cabin itself cleaned up. Mom wanted to cut into that wild field a bit, increase the area of usable yard by a bit, but when we got up there, our plans changed. The field, in those few intervening weeks of spring, had bloomed into thousands of shapes and colors. That familiar but not familiar scent hit all four of us as we stood at the threshold of that field. We were drawn in, bewitched, and my mom blurted out, we're going to leave the flowers alone. Us children silently agreed, watched those flowers reach toward the sun, and then got to work. I got to work on the area around the cabin, lifting large rocks into the wheelbarrow and sending them down the side of the hill toward the woods. Alex and my mom ripped up dead roots and cleared rotting wood. Ben ran through the field, chasing butterflies and grasshoppers. When the sun got low in the sky, we stopped our work for the day. I set up the tent, and Mom got started building a fire. I watched Alex wander around the clearing for a while, eyes squinting, looking intently for something. I hammered the last of the tent stakes into the ground and then shouted over to her. What's wrong, Alex? I asked. Have you seen Ben? She asked in return. A lump shot into my throat. Now that she mentioned it, I hadn't heard his laughing for an hour or so. I shot a look at my mom, who had straightened up and was, if her face was anything to go by, coming to the same conclusion that I was. Alex, when's the last time you saw Ben? My mom asked. I don't know. I just really noticed he wasn't here when we stopped tearing up weeds, she said. Where's the last place you saw him? She asked. I guess in the flowers, she said. My mom turned to me and I nodded, affirming that the field was the last place I saw him, too. Ben, my mom said, shouting to nowhere in particular. I dropped the hammer that was hanging from my hand and hurried over to the edge of the flowery field. Ben, I said, 
but if he answered, I couldn't hear anything over the buzz of bees and rustling of green stalks swaying in the wind. Okay, my mom said, joining me. This field isn't that big. If we spread out, we can search it in like half an hour. I nodded my agreement. Alex, my mom said, you start over there. Chris, here. I'm going to start over there. And we made our way through the field, step by step, examining every inch of those thick wildflowers. The odor, at least to me, was overwhelming, intoxicating. I became lightheaded. My limbs felt like air. I floated through that field, seemingly lifted out of my body, and watched myself from above. It was twenty minutes before Alex shouted, I found him, he's over here. Mom and I rushed to her side to see Ben, unconscious, eyes shut tight, laying still in the ground beneath the canopy of flowers. Mom lifted him to her shoulder, and Alex and I brushed the dirt and insects clinging to him to the ground. I found him in his room about a week later. He was just about done with the finishing touches of a Lego spaceship that my dad had bought him a few months before he passed away. I stood in the door, watching him for a few minutes as he put the last few blocks in place and then set it on the ground in front of him. He didn't play with it. He just placed it on the rug and stared. He'd been speaking less since the episode at the cabin, and my mom had asked me to try to make sure he didn't retreat back into his shell. What's its name? I asked him. What? he asked. The spaceship, I said. Does it have a name? No. Why not? I asked. I don't know, he said. Well, why not give it one? I asked. Okay, he said. Will you help? Of course, I said. I sat with him on the rug, and we both stared down at the Lego construction in front of us. How about Starshot, I said. Ben shook his head. Newton? No. Comet? That's a dog's name, he said. Okay. Well, what are your ideas, then, I asked. Hmm, he said, putting his finger to his chin to exaggerate his thinking. What about... He picked the ship up in his hands and flipped it over and over. Frank. I paused. Why Frank, I asked, though I already knew the answer. That was Dad's name, he said. I nodded. The spaceship Frank. I like it. He put the Lego spaceship back onto the rug, and I saw my chance. Hey, Ben. Last time we went up to the cabin, you fell asleep in the flowers, remember? He nodded. Why'd you lay down in there? They gave me something to eat and it made me sleepy, he said. Who's they? But Ben didn't answer. Ben, what lives in the wildflowers? I told my mom what Ben had said when she got home from the grocery store with Alex. Her responses were predictable. Just his imagination, just an imaginary friend. He ran around all afternoon. It's no wonder he got tired and went to sleep. Then, after I pressed and pressed, she snapped at me. Chris, stop. You're not going to ruin this. 
This family deserves one good thing. One not catastrophic thing. You understand? I nodded. And the thing was, I agreed with her. We did deserve one good thing. What lives in the wildflowers? What lives in the wildflowers? I asked the question over and over in my head until the next time we headed up there a few weeks later. We worked more on the small yard surrounding the cabin, leveling the soil, putting in a flagstone path, planting small shrubs along the front of the cabin. We were going to plant grass the next time we made it up there. But one thing we still didn't touch were those wildflowers, now in full, glorious bloom. Days were getting hot, and the humidity was a thing to contend with. And heat and humidity meant bugs and sweat, but none of us were much bothered by it. Just being up there, just being close to that field of flowers, seemed to buoy all of our moods. We were quickly growing to love it up there. I pitched the tent, and Mom made dinner. We kept a much closer eye on Ben, and this time he didn't go missing, instead taking a short nap in the backseat of the car around three. We devoured dinner, a pack of four ravenous animals, and then sat around the fire until we all started falling asleep. I woke late that night with a full bladder. Slipping out of the tent, I noticed that Ben's sleeping bag was empty again and panicked. If he fell asleep in the flowers, it would be impossible to find him in the dark of night. I ran out of the tent and scanned the edge of the overgrowth, spotting Ben immediately, crouching down just like I found him before. I jogged over to him, and just as I was about to reach him, I saw something dart back into the wildflowers. It was big, the size of a dog or a large raccoon. I saw Ben was holding his hand open below his face, staring down at something small and dark in his palm. Hey, bud, what are you doing out here? Ben's hand shot up to his face, and he shoved whatever was in his hand into his mouth. Whoa, hey, spit that out, I said, but he had already swallowed. What was that, I asked. They like me, he said, but they don't like you. Ben fell to the ground limp momentarily, and then went completely rigid. The moon, pale and low in the sky, was nonetheless plenty of light to see the horrors my little brother experienced in that moment. Lumps appeared over his entire body. Some of those ruptured, releasing an incredibly sweet and now totally familiar scent. His head turned violently, cracking his neck until his face was pointed the wrong way. I screamed for my mother, and she ripped open the tent, running as fast as she could toward the commotion. Ben's legs and arms cracked and split, segmented, until he was able to hold himself low to the ground and scurry along it. He looked up at me one last time and darted into the wildflowers before my mom could reach my side. I didn't know what to say. What would cause less pain to my poor, poor mother? Ben's gone, I said. Ben's gone. What? Did you see him? Did you see where he went? I shook my head, holding back those tears as best I could.
That was years ago now. A two-week police search of the surrounding area turned up nothing. Not that I expected it would. I knew where Ben was. The answer to that question I used to ask, what lives in the wildflowers, I know now. It's Ben. Ben lives in the wildflowers. It's why we spend so much time up there at that cabin. Why we sit for hours just watching those flowers sway in the wind. Why we breathe deep, taking in their sickeningly sweet scent. To be a little closer to Ben. And sometimes, sometimes our patience is rewarded. And we catch a word or two of Ben's voice, carried by the wind. I'm grown now, starting a family of my own. My wife's pregnant, and though we've spent many summer weekends up there, I don't think we'll go back until my children are fully grown. Sorry, Ben. I'll be back eventually. I promise. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, What Lives in the Wildflowers, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Wildflowers and Springtime Rain. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. (laughs) ¶¶